Thank you to the praise team this morning, especially for that uh, last song, because that last song took me me back to all the awkwardness of 1996, uh, when 14-year-old Kurt was desperately trying to uh, uh, get our pastor's daughter to be his girlfriend, and um, it was a great two-day relationship full of awkwardness that all 14-year-old eighth-grade relationships have with them. Uh, It lasted for two days until her dad found out and said, no, you're not having a boyfriend yet at age 14. So uh, thank you to that one uh, really awkward night we had on a a Sunday evening church service singing that song, her sitting beside me, you know, we touched elbows, you know, like, you know, we were, it was the the stuff of dreams right there. So, hey, speaking of childhood, uh, I don't know how many of you had a similar experience to this, but uh, I can think back to the times in my life as a kid when I had those conversations with my dad. You know, we all had those conversations with our parents, but had that one where, you know, I was telling him all the stuff that I would want to be when I would grow up. And you think about that as a kid, especially boys, uh, you know, what you want to be when you grow up, it like changes week to week. You know, it's like I want to be a, an astronaut or I want to be a firefighter or uh, I went through this TV uh, weatherman phase. I wanted to be a TV weatherman. Um, you know, I wanted to grow up like most boys and be a professional athlete. And my dad tells me that, that magical dad phrase that I'm already catching myself saying to my uh, children, which is, you can be anything that you want to be. You know, put your mind to it. You can be anything that you want to be. Now, as I've grown up, I've realized that my dad's promise wasn't completely true. There was a little bit of a lie in there because obviously I'm not playing center field for the St. Louis Cardinals right now. Uh, I'm here with you all instead. So that didn't quite come all the way through, that, that promise, so to speak. But as we think about this, we think about what does it mean to you to think about promise? What does it mean to you to think about uh, whether it's somebody giving you a promise or maybe the promise of hope, the promise of the future? What does that mean uh, to you? Today we are in Romans chapter 4, if you want to turn there, as we continue through this, this series uh, on uh, the book of Romans. And just to kind of recap, if you've missed the last week or two or, or any part of this, we've, we've gone through really the first kind of three uh, parts of the opening section of Romans. Uh, we, we saw the first half of the first chapter, this introduction to the book, introduction to the letter, and, and Paul kind of in there gives his, his main point through all of this. In chapter 1, verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for the gospel, which is the message of Jesus going to the cross for you, that's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then he goes on to say, for in it, for in that gospel message, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. We then spent a couple of weeks talking about the last half of chapter 1 through the first half of chapter 3, just about how miserable, rotten, and terrible of sinners we really are. Those were two really uplifting weeks, if you were here for those. We just got to see how bad our sin is and how we deserve death because of that. But then last week, we turned the page into the last part of chapter 3, and we saw that despite all of that, despite the fact that we deserve death and we deserve everything our sin brings upon us, God made a way for us. And He sent Jesus to die on the cross for us, and because of that, now we're brought to restoration. We are brought to redemption with Him. So as we get into chapter 4 today, uh, you're, you're going to see Paul kind of repeat himself a little bit. This is kind of a, a bit of a transition passage. As we get out of chapter uh, 3, Paul's moving from his opening uh, kind of overall movement into his next movement, and he kind of bridges a couple of topics here. We're going to kind of cover a, a bigger section of Scripture today because Paul really just makes some themes through this. 
And we're going to kind of look at these themes that this story uh, plays out. So Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 1, it's going to seem maybe a little bit redundant, but he's going to kind of take this generalization he just made and make it a little bit more specific. Romans 4 verse 1, here's what he says, "'What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does the Scripture say?' Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Again, this is kind of an extension of what we just read. You're justified, you're redeemed, and you're atoned through faith. That's what he just talked about in chapter 3, and that's kind of what he is saying here. But in particular, he says, Abraham, our forefather. The Jews know who Abraham is, and most likely, even, even the Christians that are Gentiles, that are Romans, probably have an idea of who Abraham is. And that's why he says it here, Abraham, our forefather. And so I picture Paul just kind of walking out in front of this, this group of Christians. Like, hey, you know, we're going to talk about Abraham. You know, you know, Father Abraham, who had many sons. And us many sons, you know, we had Father Abraham. And I'm one of them, and so are you, so let's just praise the Lord. Right arm, left arm, right foot, left foot. <laughs> Turn around, sit down. I'm sure he's saying the song. That's probably when it was written, to be honest with you. But he's talking about Abraham. Why? Because he just went through this section, and like any good preacher, Paul needs to make an illustration. But I think it's more than just an illustration. It's more than just putting a name and a face and a story that these Christians could relate to, to what he's just talked about in terms of salvation through faith. Because you see, he he mentions in verse 3 that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's not just Paul making a point. Paul's actually quoting scripture here. You go back into the book of Genesis, and we read about Abraham's story. And in Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham, and he calls him out of this land that he has been in and known his whole life. Abraham's an old man at this point already, and he's lived his whole life here. Imagine this being you, and you've lived here for 60 or 70 years in this spot, in this town, maybe in the same house. And God comes and he goes, it's time for you to move. And you're like, what? That's what happened, though. And then he makes all of these promises to Abraham. And then he comes back a few years later in in chapter 15, and he establishes a covenant with Abraham. And when you read that God establishes a covenant, that should get your attention. Because a covenant from God is permanent. It's, it's, It's encased in concrete. It's written in stone. Whatever cliche you want to put on it, that's a covenant from God. And so he comes back to him. Again, Abraham, at this point, is an old, old man. He doesn't have any children. And God's promising him children. And this makes no sense to Abraham. And in chapter 15 of Genesis, um, verse 5, he says, And he brought him outside, and he said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And then in verse 6, here's what Paul just said, And Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. He believed... And because he believed, God considered him righteous. Being righteous, we said this last week, is the result of your salvation. So what Paul is actually doing here, he's not just making a point, he's bringing this back full circle. He's bringing the Jews, he's bringing the the Jewish Christians who still want to apply the law, he's bringing this back to Abraham. He said, you know, hey, Abraham here, he existed like 600 years before the law did. Because you got Abraham, and then you've got his son Isaac, and then Jacob, and then Joseph, and then there's a 400-year period in there, and then Moses finally comes along and leads the, the Israelites out, and then they get the law. They're already a nation at this point. 
And what they believed was that, that if you followed the law, you would get saved through that. You would get saved by doing what you were supposed to do. And Paul's saying, hey, you know what? Abraham, he, he existed centuries before that law, and yet he was righteous in the sight of God. Why? Because he believed. See, here's the thing about the law. The law was never intended to, to be the determining factor in someone's faith. It was, it was there and it existed to protect someone's faith and to foster someone's faith, not to dictate it or direct it. And little by little over the generations, I think what happened was the Jewish people just kind of got away from that idea and they started almost worshiping the law over God. I don't think that that was their intention. I just think it happened so gradually, they really didn't notice it. And before long, they're worshiping the very structure that's there to protect the purpose of worshiping. They're, they're worshiping the structure that protects faith. Now, church, if we were honest, if we stepped back and looked, I think the church has kind of followed a similar path. Because when the church was founded, it was founded, why? To bring people together to worship Jesus. To bring people together to grow together in Jesus. You read in the book of Acts, those first few days, the church is growing by the thousands. It's just people coming together. They want to know more about Jesus. They're coming to listen to the apostles teach. They're coming to grow from more seasoned followers of Jesus. And little by little, I think what's happened is we have taken that mindset of the church and we have kind of made it into this thing where the church is more important than the purpose of the church. And I don't think we've done this like egregiously. I don't think we've done this on purpose. I think it's just generation after generation. We like our structures and we like our systems and that's become the most important thing for us. I've seen churches. I've been a part of churches. Maybe you have too. They kind of follow this model that say when you show up, we want you to believe and behave like we do. And then you can belong to us. And they kind of follow maybe this pattern here of, of if you behave and you belong you can believe, or maybe they flip those last two. If you act like us and think like us, you can come join us. In other words, get your act together and come join our church. Come join our family. Here's the only problem. That's not a church. That's a country club. That's a social gathering. Believe and behave like me, and you can come join me. Think like me, and you can come join me. That's not how the church should function. But sadly, that's how some churches do. I think it, it needs to function more like this. You come belong to our body, no matter where you are or what you're, you're coming from or what you're bringing with you. Come join us. Come belong to our body. And, and as, as you belong here, we'll help you believe. We'll point you in the direction of Jesus. Because as you believe in him more, you're going to become like him more. And the reason I think this is the model the church should follow is because this is the model Jesus followed. I mean, what did Jesus do? He went to fishermen and tax collectors and said, follow me. And they did. And the more they followed him, they started to believe like him a little bit more. They didn't have it all figured out. I mean, how many times does Peter say something ridiculous in the Bible? I mean, every page. You don't have to look very hard to find the apostles or the disciples at this point saying or doing something that was so far off base because they didn't have it all figured out yet. But what happens as you read on and on, you get into the book of Acts and you read their stories on and on, they start to look an awful lot like Jesus. Belong, believe, become. The church should exist to protect and foster faith, not to dictate it, not to direct it. 
Reading on, Paul says in verse 4, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. What he is saying here is if you have to, to work for something, it's not a gift, it's payment. Think of it from this, this angle. Let's say I came up to one of you after service and gave you a $100 bill and just walked away. That's a gift, right? I didn't give this to you because of anything. I didn't expect anything. There's no condition here. I just gave this to you. Now, my heart, I'm probably thinking, you know what? I, I don't care if they pay me back, but I hope that they, uh, you know, this person's not a jerk. You know, I hope that they, they take this and they help other people. But if you don't, I mean, I still gave it to you. That's a gift. But if you come to my house and you clean up all those little pink and white flowers that my children love that are falling out of the trees, that were tracking into the house and all over the place, you clean up all those, you pick up my sticks, you mow my yard, you do all this stuff, and then I give you $100, I'm just kind of paying you for what you just did. That's not a gift. That's, that, 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 that's, that's a payment. That's a wage. That's a reward, however you want to call that. Salvation does not function that way. We are not given salvation based on what we have done or what we will do. <clears throat> that's, that's how the Jews believed, but that's not what the Bible teaches us. Salvation is a gift. You, you may remember back a few years ago, I preached a sermon. We did this series called I Have a Question, where we talked about all these hard questions that are out there in society today. And one of the questions that we asked, that we, that we answered in that series was, are all religions the same? Because that's one common uh, criticism you will hear, especially when it comes to Christianity and Judaism and Islam. They're all the same anyway. They all worship the same God. They all follow Abraham, yada, yada, yada. And I don't know if you remember this, but I, I put a ladder on the stage right here. And I said, here's the ultimate difference. All of these other religions, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, uh, Mormonism, etc., etc., all of these require you to do something to climb your way up to God. But with Christianity... He came down that ladder to us. We don't have to do anything to be saved. We have to believe in Him. And that's it. In fact, I'll say it this way. If salvation had to be earned, God's grace would not be necessary. If salvation was to be earned, the cross would not have been necessary. That is the symbol of grace. That is the symbol of mercy. And here's why that's important, to believe in that and, and to accept that and to realize that grace is a gift. It's important because that, that, that grace, that mercy through that faith brings with it a promise. If you jump ahead to verse 13, here's what Paul says. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherence of the law who are the, uh, to be the heirs, then faith is null and the promise is void. In other words, if you just get this by following the rules, then it doesn't really matter. It's not really worth anything. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is transgression. Here's the key part, verse 16. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, get this, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. 
That's a big chunk of scripture there, but pay attention to that last little line there. Because here's what I want you to understand. Forget for a second that we just read all the rest of that and just think about that last line. If I were to take that what's in yellow and I were to put that on Facebook with no context, you're like, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. You can't give life to the dead. You can't call into existence what doesn't exist. Like, you pull this out of the context of everything we just read, and it's ridiculous. And here's the thing. The promise of God is kind of ridiculous. Why? Because it makes no sense to us. It makes no sense to our specifically trained minds, to our logic, to our rationale. It doesn't make sense. Paul is saying that from the dead will come life. Well, that doesn't work, right? But he goes on and he elaborates further. Look at verse 18. In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul uses two contrasting things here. Life and death. Now, when you think about what sort of things you can compare and contrast, those are about the furthest apart you can get, right? Something that's dead is clearly not alive. Something that is alive is clearly not dead. I mean, those are about as far apart as you can get. And he says that from death came life. Abraham's body was as good as dead. He was 100 years old. His wife, Sarah, was 90 years old. She was way past the ages of having, uh, having children. And yet through this, God brought life. He brought Isaac. And you think about this, like, well, that was just one person. Yeah, but then Isaac had a son named Jacob, and Jacob had a son named Joseph who delivered his people. And then years later, generations later, there came this king named David. And then generations later and generations later, there came this baby named Jesus. From death came life. And as Paul goes on in this section, he's going to talk about Jesus dying on the cross and coming out of the grave. Jesus went to the the tomb. He was dead. There was no questioning that. Medical experts today will look at the details of crucifixion and say there is no chance that he could have survived that. He went to the grave dead, and he walked out alive. And through that, we move from death to life. That's the promise of God. And here's the thing, the promise of God does not make sense to us. Here's kind of what this looks like in our own lives. When we're able to remove this death and decay from our own lives, when we're able to let go of the things in front of us and truly deny ourselves, truly deny our own thoughts and, and ambitions, and embrace God and follow Him, we give Him room to move. And when we give God room to move, his promise starts to come into effect. And when his promise comes into effect, life begins to grow. Life begins to happen. And here's kind of the catch with this. It's probably not going to look like what you think it's going to look like. I can tell you what I think God's going to do, but I can tell you how many times I've thought that, and it's been completely different when it finally played out. 
Maybe you've heard the promise of God, and it's clear to you what the promise of God is, and you're looking at that going, are you serious, God? There's no way. There's no way you're going to make this happen. Again, Abraham was 100 years old. You're going to have a son. He's like, <laughs> there's no way. And we know that he struggled with this. And so, so here's the thing. Whatever your promise is, if, you, if, if it's clear to you, and you're like, God, there's no way in the world this is going to happen. Or, or maybe you're, you're hearing a promise from God, but you don't know what it is. You just know he's saying, hey, follow me. Leave everything you've owned and come follow me in this dark path. Just listen to my voice and follow. Here's the thing, church. I don't know what the future holds for any of us or for us as a whole. I don't know what it holds. God does. That's what matters. My future, your futures, they may all be completely different than what we have in our mind. And we have to accept that reality that God has a plan that is far beyond anything we can come up with on our own. And here's the thing I want you to, to understand. I want to encourage you with this today. You can have faith in God and also have trouble believing what he's telling you. That's okay. That's okay. Abraham was there. When, when God came to Abraham and Sarah and said, you're going to have a child, they laughed. And it wasn't like, oh, yay, a child. It was like, are you serious? You know, you like, kind of like a sarcastic laugh. And it says right here, in hope, he believed against hope. In hope, he believed against hope. We're going to read in a few weeks in Romans 8. Paul says that hope that can be seen is not hope at all. Verse 21 here, he says, no unbelief made him waver. Talking about Abraham. That doesn't mean he didn't have unbelief. That means none of his unbelief caused his faith to be shaken. Think to the Gospels. You, you read the story about the father whose child was dying, and he asked Jesus to heal him. And what's he tell Jesus? I believe, but help my unbelief. Look at verse 21. Abraham was fully convinced God was able to do what he had promised. That's the promise of God, is that even when it does not make sense to you, and let's be frank, it's probably not going to make sense to you, God is in control. And here's the thing I want you to take from this, is that when you sit back and you let God move, you will find that His promise is perfect and He is consistent. I'm not. You're not. I can promise you the world, but I can only deliver on what I can control. And, and maybe you've been through this. You make a promise and you've got every intention to keep it and something happens that keeps you from fulfilling that promise. I mean, it can be something as simple as I promise my kids I'll take them to the park and I go outside and my car won't start. Sorry, kids, you've got to break that promise. You can only promise what you can control. God can control the world. His promise is perfect and He is consistent. When you have that faith and you start to understand that promise, it brings with it something that we can simply not acquire on our own. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, you see that word therefore? <laughs> you always take what you just read and you apply it here. Because of all of that that we just said, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have, say it with me, peace. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ. That is an important wording. Peace with God through Jesus. 
That's what it's all about. You think about peace, and if I were to come and ask you all what your understanding of peace is, you're all probably going to give me an answer. And all your answers may be different, but all your answers are probably going to be good answers. Because I think we all have some understanding of what peace is. And, and maybe for you, you have an understanding of what peace is because you don't have it right now. You know what you have going on, and you're like, man, if, if I didn't have this, I would have peace. And when it comes to peace, there's kind of two answers here. That, that, that Paul is kind of alluding to that his readers would have understood, and I think they both apply to what he's actually getting to. The first is Gentile and Roman uh, readers would have understood as the Pax Romana. That's the Latin phrase for, for the peace of Rome. And basically, Rome had this mantra out there, this, this kind of uh, rule in place that said, as long as you're not causing any problems, we're going to let you do whatever you want to do. As long as you don't rise up, that's, that's what they let uh, the, the, these Christians do Christianity because it wasn't causing any problems. Once it did, then it became their problem. And so maybe for us, that's what we think of is, as long as I don't have anybody causing issues in my life, there's peace. As long as you guys don't come bother me, I'm, you're good with me. The second you bother me, we got a problem. That's, that's one way to look at peace. It's like the removal of conflict or the avoidance of conflict. And that's what most of us think about when we think of peace. But the Jew would have heard this differently. The Jew would have read peace, and they would have heard the word shalom. And shalom is completeness or wholeness. It's not taking something away, it's adding something back. I think when we look at what Paul's referring to here as peace with God through Jesus, it's a combination of those two. Think back a week ago, what did the cross do for us? Through our faith and what Jesus did on the cross, we were justified we were redeemed, we were atoned. Remember what those mean? We were set free from the legal fallout of our sin. We were set free from the bonds of slavery from our sin. We were set free from the wrath of God because of our sin. We look at all that, what does that mean? Peace means that we are redeemed to God. Go back to the very beginning. Adam and Eve are in the garden. And God created this perfect paradise with, with no intention. Death was never a part of God's plan. Brokenness was never a part of God's plan. And somewhere along the line, Adam and Eve decided, I wonder what else there is out there. I don't know how long they, they went about in the garden before they broke this. If they're like me, probably like a day and a half, you know? Because no matter how good you get it or you have it, you're just like, hmm, I wonder what else there is. <laughs> And we broke that. And because we broke that, we brought brokenness and messiness and sin and death and darkness into the world. We broke that off with God. If you ever put two pieces of paper together, glued them together, and then ripped them apart, there's brokenness, there's messiness with that, and you're not putting those back together. Think back to the relationship that you had. I'm not trying to dredge up wounds here, but think back to a relationship that you had that was broken, and it was not broken cleanly. Now, I want you to think, what would it take to get my relationship with this person back to the way it was before anything ever happened? Because that person might come back into your life, but it's hard to, to completely clean that wound. But if you can get it back to the way it was from the very beginning, that's what Jesus did for us. That is what it means to be redeemed. We are restored to Jesus. There's restoration that has taken place. That is peace with God through Jesus. And here's the thing, folks. It does not matter what you have done. 
It doesn't matter what you've done to Jesus. It doesn't matter what you've done to God or other people. He has brought you back to Him anyway. You may be sitting there going, Kurt, you don't understand. I've got this laundry list of sin. I've got, I, I'm one of the worst people you have ever met. I don't care. Jesus doesn't care. He went to the cross for that. He went to the cross to cleanse that. And He asks you to do one thing in return. Believe it. I said last week, that just sounds like the most ridiculous agreement of all time. I'll send my son to die on a cross for you. You believe it. He goes on in verse uh, 2. He says, Through Jesus we also have obtained access by faith into His grace, in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, here it comes, highlight this, this verse, we rejoice in our sufferings. My favorite verse in the Bible. Not really. We rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. How many of you came today going, I really hope he tells us that we should rejoice in our suffering? How many of that, that, that's your life verse, you're going to get it tattooed on your arm? That's probably not our favorite verse in the Bible. Trevor said a couple of weeks ago when he preached on sin, this isn't the one you want to show up to church for. Well, you probably don't want to show up to talk about suffering. I mean, if God gave me a, a, an eraser and said, you can erase a few verses from the Bible if you want to, this is probably number one on the list. Because how many of us, when we are suffering, we're going, God, thank you for this. This is what I wanted. <laughs> I wanted these hard times in my life right now. I wanted these questions in my life right now. And he tells us to rejoice in them. I don't know what suffering looks like for you. I could get a different answer from all of you. Kind of like the peace question, it's going to be probably a, a pretty good answer from all of you. I think about this from the perspective of the church as we are moving forward into this world that is turning away from God more and more as fast as it possibly can. Our idea of suffering is probably going to look a little bit different than what it did a generation ago. Our idea of suffering might look like we're going to be a persecuted church. Maybe not physically persecuted, but we're having our, our legs taken up underneath us. We're having our credibility taken away. That might be worse. Because you don't get any sympathy from that. You just look like the, the, the villain. Maybe that's our suffering. We're called to suffer through this time. Who knows? I don't know. I don't know what suffering looks like for you, but our call is to continue and to persist in those times of suffering. Why? Because suffering leads to endurance. Endurance leads to character. Character leads to hope. I used to tell my soccer players, uh, we, we, we played our season in the spring, so March and April, we were playing our games. But we started in August with training. August and September and October, we're training, and we're out there in the heat and the humidity of Oklahoma, and we're pushing them. And we're not just going to the weight room, we're not just running laps, we were pushing them. We had them flip track those big, huge tractor tires. We had them flipping them over until they couldn't lift their arms anymore. We had them pushing those blocking sleds they use in football practice. Why? Not because we were trying to be mean, because we were trying to break them down so we could build them up. And I would tell the girls, they'd be like, why are we doing this? I'd say, listen, I care about you, 
and I love you, but this, this other team that we're going to face in April that's going to be beating us by a goal with three minutes to play, they don't give a rip about you. They hope you fall. They hope you falter. They hope that you don't endure. And when it comes to us, folks, the world can look at us and say, you know what, we don't give a rip about you. We can look around this room, we can love each other, we can care about each other, but the world outside there doesn't. And it's going to heap on it unless we persist, unless we suffer and rejoice in those sufferings and let that build endurance and character. And ultimately, the answer to all this is hope. We hope that we can make an impact in the world. We hope that Jesus will guide us through this. Why do we hope this? Because he's, he's done it before and he'll do it again. Abraham hoped against hope. I I read that. In hope, he believed against hope. And again, like we said a few moments ago, hope that can be seen is not hope. I don't know what it's all going to look like. I don't know what that promise of God is going to look like or what that peace is going to look like. The important thing is that God does. And that time and time again, his promise has shown to be true. And here's the thing. Here's why this is so valuable to us, because his love for us is beyond anything we can fathom or imagine. Look at verse 6. While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even uh, dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I have a very hard time with Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Because to me, that's the most unbelievable verse in the Bible. Because who dies for the worst person in the world? Who gives up their life for the worst person in the world? I'll be honest, I won't. I mean, I would, I would throw myself in front of a bullet for my wife and my kids. I would throw myself in front of a bullet for you all. Some of you all, at least. <laughs> for 20 bucks, I'll tell you who. <laughs> for 50 bucks, I'll actually do it. So, no. You think about the worst person in the world. You don't have to have a name and a face. Just think about what would qualify someone to be the worst person in the world. And then you say, would I jump in front of a bullet for them? Most of us are probably saying no. They deserve that bullet. They deserve that. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know what that means? That means when you were at your absolute worst, Christ died for you. When you were at that that end of that laundry list of all those sins that you're thinking about, Christ died for you. When you were spitting in his face, he died for you. When you were broken and messy and you didn't care how broken and messy you were because you embraced it, Christ died for you. That's what that means. He did not wait for you to come to him. He did not wait for you to get your act together. He didn't say, when you believe like me and behave like me, then I'll do this. He came to you.
I have a hard time believing verse 8 because that is so far away from who I am as a person. Because that goes against my human nature. Because that goes against do to others as you want them to do to you. Because we flip that. We do to others as they've done to us. Christ died for you at your absolute worst. Why? So that maybe, just maybe, you would come to him. Maybe, just maybe, you would believe that. It's not about believing and behaving in order to become. It's about belonging to him and believing in him and then becoming like him. If Jesus walked up to you today and said, follow me, drop everything you've got and follow me, could you do it? Could we really, really do it? Could we leave it all and follow him? Folks, the key to this is faith. When we believe, we understand the promise, and we find the promise will bring us peace, even if it doesn't look like it. Why? Because God loves you more than you could possibly imagine. Father, we are so thankful. God, we're thankful that Jesus did all this for us, even though it doesn't make one bit of sense for us. God, we are thankful that Jesus went to the cross for somebody who who deserved it so, not at all. Jesus went to the cross for me when I was looking for other alternatives, thinking, I wonder what else is out there. And God, as we move towards this, this Easter season, when we think about how you went to the cross and we think about how you ran out of that grave, God, that we would, we would just simply believe it. Even in our moments of unbelief, God, our faith would grow strong as we cling to a promise that may not make sense to us. That God, we believe you, so therefore we believe the promise. God, I am so thankful that you have brought us to peace. A peace is not this subjective feeling, God, but a peace is an objective, yes. Yes, you are redeemed. Yes, you are restored. God, I pray today that anybody is is struggling with belief, that it not let their faith waver, that through unbelief, God, their faith would grow stronger. Maybe through moments of doubting, they would get more clarity on who you are. And you would encourage them and remind them, it's okay, I'm still right here with you. I will never leave you. I will not forsake you. God, we're so thankful for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.